The United Nations quotes the year 2050 as a point when we, as a severely intertwined global community, need to have our act together in relation to food production as the projected population of 9 billion people draws nearer. The way we're burning through resources has pushed individuals, social media influencers, and communities to adopt and promote veganism. Vegan diets, featuring everything from fresh tropical fruit platters to veganized chicken fingers, have exploded in popularity in recent years. Though vegan diets are commended for offering a plethora of health benefits, their impact on animal protection and preserving environmental resources prove to be leading reasons for many who choose to go vegan. In fact, over 73% of those who go vegan indicate that animal protection is one of the major reasons for this dietary lifestyle change. Environmental sustainability as it relates to food production is a very real, pressing issue. However, vegan diets and foods are often not accessible or accepted by all individuals. How might we generate a culture which is not only more welcoming of vegan habits, but also able to access such foods. Dr. Suzanne Piscopo was the former head and associate professor of the Department for Health, Physical Education, and Consumer Studies. She has written healthier lifestyle-related stories for children, researched the relation between the Mediterranean diet and health, and is both a registered nutritionist and a European health promotion practitioner. Welcome, Dr. Suzanne Piscopo. Thank you. Thanks for the invitation. I was wondering if you could tell me some of the most important lessons you have learned through past experiences and during your career. Whoa, okay. <laughs> now you've started We're off with a really right like, onerous question there. <laughs> um, of course, yes. I mean, I, I was listening to your introduction and um, you really sort of hit the nail on the head with regards to why people in general tend to go for a, a plant-based diet. Um, what lessons have I learned? Uh, let me focus on that in relation to that. As you realize, I use the word plant-based diet. I think when people, um, and here I'm generalizing a bit, but there tends to be this kind of feel that when people hear the word veganism, they tend to associate it with a I'm going to be a bit blunt here, a group of like militant people nearly sometimes in the sense that, um, you know, they're all out, you know, against those people who actually do uh, consume meat and um, and sort of they have this certain attitude towards people who like them don't just consume plants. Like um, self-righteousness. Yes, that's kind of thing. And so I, first of all, tend to say let's move towards a plant-based diet. And I think that's a bit more acceptable. And of course, being from Malta, um, with the whole, you know, interest, renewed interest in Mediterranean diet, kind of if you use that as your springboard, like, you know, let's go for a Mediterranean diet, which is mainly a plant-based diet with some, okay, fish and, and, and chicken, etc. So I think choice of words, let's start off on that, is lesson number one, how you approach this. So if you're going to emphasize more plants in your diet, maybe the word veganism just comes in later on in the, in the discussion. Um, and then, of course, yes, people are extremely interested in, in, in their health. There's a big move now. Yes, we, we need to be more responsible for our well-being. Um, and people are aware that diet has a huge role to play there and that um, plants, whatever, whether we're talking about cereals, whether we're talking about vegetables, whether we're talking about 
fruits, pulses, um, can definitely contribute towards making your diet healthier. Then, of course, as you rightly mentioned in the introduction, uh, there's the whole issue of environment. And what's good for you is also good for the planet. That's kind of become a mantra now. You know, eat for your own health, but eat for planetary health as well. And um, I, people, again, are realizing that the more plant-based you are, the less detriment or the less negative impact you're going to have on the planet. So I guess um, showing that you're a responsible citizen, both taking care of your own health, but also taking care of planetary health, is another lesson which I think I've learned that can be used with a larger number of people. And I might just add one little thing here um, with young people, especially with children. Children at, you know, we're talking primary level, are very uh, open to this idea that I'm doing something for my own good, but even more so for the good of the planet and such as animal welfare, for example, or to have a nice green environment. And this also holds for Malta now. There's lots happening in schools around that. Uh, I love that. So very positive mentality around this shift that we're seeing. Um, and also what you said about young people, that reminds me, I actually have a friend whose niece, she's only six years old and is talking about how she wants to be vegetarian. So that kind of awareness at such a young age, already questioning, what am I eating? Why am I eating it? It's amazing to see. Shall we go into a bit and clarify what defines veganism, the difference between vegetarianism and pescatarianisms and <laughs> flexitarianism, all these isms? Yes. Okay, no, I mean, basically, when you're looking at uh, veganism, I guess that's the kind of end of the continuum, if you want to say that. And um, there, a person is definitely not going to have any food which... Um, has any kind of pla um, animal animal uh, relation so whether it's the food itself or something derived from from that food whereas vegetarianism you have this kind of leeway or allowance to also include uh, dairy products. So in the sense that you have not harmed the animal by, um, you know, extracting, if you want to say that, let's say milk mm -hmm. uh, from, from the cow. Although some might argue that even how that is done could cause some suffering. Or, for example, you know, if, you're, if you have a... a eggs, okay, from, from hens, whatever, there again, the... Technically, the, the hen has, has not been harmed. So there you have this allowance of, of dairy for the vegetarians. Then with the pescatarians, as possibly you can um, you know, deduct from the name itself, there's the allowance of fish. So seafood, etc. is allowed there as well. So that's, um, the diet there would be more varied. It would be perhaps easier for people also to, to choose um, what to eat and have a variety of meals. Though I'll come back to that later as well because okay. I don't want to imply in any way that being a vegan or vegetarian means a dull, mundane diet. Not okay. at all. <laughs> um, I can attest to that. Yes. And of course, there's this whole flexitarianism kind of thing, which is really, um, you are... Um, allowed if you want to say that you can consume some meat but so you shift between you know having some meals with meat but also meals which are mainly plant-based etc but people still tend to be um, cautious with regards to meat consumption and tend to have a lower meat consumption when it comes to this sort of flexitarianism I mean, I'd just like to add straight away, also putting on my nutritionist hat here, that the World Health Organization basically is recommending uh, not more than two portions of red meat a week. 
So even, you know, the WHO itself is not saying, like, become a vegan or a vegetarian, but it's definitely promoting and recommending a low red meat diet. And that is mainly from the health perspective on, on their part, of course, because it's been recognized that having a high meat consumption often tends to be a high fat diet. And there's other um, substances in the meat which increase the risk, I'm not saying lead to, but increase the risk potentially for certain cancers, for example. So basically that meat is, is effectively what well, could be seen as a carcinogen, right? So. We have to be a bit careful not to okay. be so blunt sure. <laughs> in the sense that, but there is the risk. Yes, I guess, you know, you, you, you can say that, that inc- it does increase the risk for cancer, um, particularly excess. how it's been processed as well. Um, okay, you can have raw red meat, but particularly processed red meat. So things like uh, sausages, salamis, all those deli meats, we call them. Okay. Um, often they will have had certain substances uh, added, nitrites and nitrates to preserve the red color. Because when you process the meat, it tends to become beige and really ugly looking. <laughs> um, and, and off-white, and people want meat to be red or, you know, that kind of thing. Well, all our food, we want it to look pretty and that yes, has its own yes. implications. Yeah. So um, as soon as you process meat, uh, you have to add something back to or, you know, put something there to retain that color. And that is a potential, let's say, carcinogen, if you want to say that the nitrates and nitrates, etc. Okay. Uh, yeah. I mean, in large doses, potentially, it might be a carcinogen. Yes. yes, yes. No, it's true. It's it's there. The fact is there. You know, with regards to to diet, there's so much to say um, with regards to, you know, um, having a plant-based diet. People will immediately associate plants with vitamins and minerals, and rightly so, with fiber, which is, I mean, these are all good things to help in your, in your diet, to help protect you from diseases, to help your digestive system work well. But then, of course, now, I mean, we've been hearing about these for about a decade or so now, there's also what we call the antioxidants. So these are substances which are found in plants. Just to take it one step a little bit deeper, we actually call these phytochemicals as well. So phyto from plants and chemicals. And these help to reduce uh, the risk for heart disease, reduce the risk for cancer. They do that by uh, protecting against inflammation in the body. And inflammation is one thing which can lead to cancer, which can lead to heart disease. What are these phytochemicals? It's very simple. The coloring, if you want to say that. In the, in the different uh, fruits and vegetables. So that's why we always say eat a variety of vegetables and fruit different colored. Eat your rainbow, we say to kids. Oh, eat, because, your eat your rainbow. Because um, that's if you're having yellows, greens, white, oranges, reds, purples, all of those um, are different phytochemicals. And they have like a different role in the body, but basically all leading to the same thing, protection. So um, it's something which we really need to emphasize. Eat protection from what, sorry? Yes, well, in the plants themselves, they're actually protection in the sense against uh, pests and things like that. Mm-hmm. But in our, in our bodies, as I said, these phytochemicals really help. Um, so that's why I mentioned antioxidants. They are um, substances which help prevent oxidization, which is something which can lead to inflammation in the body. And uh, inflammation is the first step to diseases such as cancer. When you have inflammation, um, there may be a greater turnover of cells and uh, for the body to repair, okay? Now, when the body um, is repairing itself, um, 
normally there's no problem. It takes its time, it repairs itself. But when there's inflammation, there's a rapid turnover of old cells and new cells. And that's where the body may make a mistake. And that's where we have what we call like mistakes in our DNA, etc. So that's where you increase your risk for, for cancer. Just to give you an, an analogy, if you're, if you're cooking a recipe and you have, you know, all the time in the world, you can take it easily, you probably won't make a mistake. But if you're told you have 10 minutes to prepare this recipe, you're putting in all the ingredients, uh -huh. then you might make a mistake. And that's what the body can do when it needs to repair itself fast. And that can happen when there is inflammation, for example. I see. So it's the, it's the variety of... of of meals, not of meals, of food that you eat. It's not necessarily like, oh, I'm just eating, I don't know, carrots every day. It might be plant-based, but it's definitely not healthy. You really need yeah. to eat a variety. A variety, because it's going to give you so many different vitamins, minerals, these phytochemicals. But also, to link back to what even, you know, like I was saying earlier in the introduction, when you're eating the variety of plants, apart from all the goodness, you know, with respect to your own health, it's extremely good for the environment because we need that biodiversity. We need the biodiversity, not only to have the biodiversity and have this richness of flora, but um, the soil is kept healthier, for example. The greater the variety of plants which you have, um, some need a lot of water, some don't need a lot of water. Okay, some will help to fix nitrogen in the soil, such as the legumes, for example, the beans. They help to keep nitrogen in the soil in a natural way, rather than adding our fertilizers and mm -hmm. you know all the nitrites and nitrates, which I mentioned earlier, are sometimes even added to food. So yes, I mean, Nika, I'm sure you can add to that as well <laughs> and from your own. Uh, it's it's really music to my ears. Yeah, as a conservationist, uh, biodiversity is is the core of what you're trying to do, preserve mm -hmm. it. And there's a lot of different ways to do it. But coming back to the idea of helping myself is also helping the planet. So diversity in your diet is also um, mimicking what it means to have a healthy planet. We need the biodiversity for ourselves as individuals mm -hmm. and also as a global human population. And having diversity um, internally is, I think, just it's connected basically in both directly and indirectly um, with having the diversity expressed in agriculture um, and then in the wild too. So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and um, you know, there's so much to that uh, in the sense, again, not only our own personal health, but and also the sort of planetary health and all the ecosystems which will help, you know, which we will help to preserve and, and maintain. But also things like, let's go even say culturally, you know, why, why, I mean, it's such a shame when you hear of like different ingredients which are no foods which are no longer being grown yes. for example they've been lost indigenous things you know indigenous uh, crops and and foods and and then the recipes associated with that and then the rituals at home associated with that so from something agriculture it becomes something social culturally because once you lose a food you lose a recipe you lose part of your culture uh, yeah i mean at at certain points we we tend to go towards food that is easier to produce rather than food that is, say... I mean, I, I'm going to be honest, I love the Mediterranean diet. I think it's fantastic. Tomatoes, eggplants, uh, fish, I think it's it's a wonderful diet. Um, but unfortunately, it seems that it's easier to go for a more 
globalized diet, if that makes sense. More westernized, More westernized maybe. diet, yes. maybe. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a shame because we have such a, a wonderful heritage when it comes to like the Mediterranean diet, I'm saying, that it's a shame when we like substitute it for not that trying another diet isn't something good, but um, I think it's a shame. I think we're missing out on it. Yes, and um, no, it's definitely a shame. As I said, I mean, going back to WHO, World Cancer Research Fund, they are all promoting the Mediterranean diet, the true authentic Mediterranean diet. We say um, the Mediterranean diet, there's this uh, triad. It's basically a diet based on uh, cereals. Mainly you have your wheat and your barley, Mm -hmm. and then you have your olives and olive oil, and you have wine. As well, the grape. Oh, okay. so, so the wine is part of the yes, diet. Yes, it's part of the then diet. Now I like it even in, <laughs> in, like in a moderate amount. In moderate <laughs> amounts, okay, yes, no, definitely. <laughs> but, um, um, I mean, you have that tried, but then, of course, you have all the other things as well. I mean, you even have, uh, to be honest, you have dairy as well. You have your yogurts, etc. But, um, in a sense, what I wanted to say was, um, because you, you also mentioned something which we hear a lot, and maybe that is a lesson, a negative lesson, which in a way I learned over the years, Nika, you mentioned lessons earlier. People tend to say that to eat healthy, you need a lot of time or you need a lot of money. But let's pick up on time first. In reality, it's perhaps because people um, haven't embraced certain shortcuts which you, can, which you can do. So, for example, okay, so let's say you go off on a Saturday. Let's use Saturday as the day when you go and, let's say, do your vegetable and fruit uh-huh. and whatever shopping. The thing is, you need to build um, a certain routine in your life. Say, okay, I've gone shopping. Now, when I go home, rather than just, like, dump everything in the fridge or whatever, let me just take that half hour and do what we call prepping. Prepping basically means that you kind of prepare, let's say, you know, a stage one or two, if you want to say that, of your food. So if you've got your vegetables, you can wash them, if you need to peel them, peel them and put them and chop them up quickly and put them in bags. So when during the week you don't have time to, let's say, prepare a soup, all you need to do is take out your bag. Okay, it's already washed, chopped everything, basically put it in a pot, boil, put uh-huh. in your blender and you've got a soup, for example. Like you, you turn your meal making into 15, 20 minute things, but you need to prep a bit before by maybe washing, peeling and chopping according to whatever the vegetable is, for example. Sometimes what happens as well is People tend to waste food, and we'll come to that as well a bit later, um, because they don't store their foods well. So know how to store your food, what goes in the fridge, what doesn't, mm-hmm. you know, that you need maybe certain things. You just need to put them in a brown bag and put them in the fridge and keep them dry. Certain things you might, you know, you can, you can um, leave them out. Probably. You can or even leave them out. Yes. Make use of the freezer. I or make use of that. the freezer. Yes, mm-hmm. definitely. So, you know, if, if you prep a few things, you can take, you can have shortcuts mm-hmm. and not spend so much time. And then things like, you know, I mean, um, really salads don't take so much time. You know, if you're preparing, let's say, some quinoa or barley or rice on the stove, and at the same time, then you're just chopping up a few vegetables. So one thing is cooking, 15 minutes, and it's done, your quinoa or your rice. And then in the meantime, you've prepared your veg, put everything together, and you know, okay. some olive oil, and you're done. So um, I think we need to educate people more on shortcuts. I'm not mm-hmm. blaming people. I'm just saying maybe their education hasn't helped them enough yet um, to know how to do these shortcuts. Or, as we, or cook in bulk. Let's say you've made soup cook a huge pot of soup then freeze in portions what you Uh have left just take out of the fridge when you get home at you know five o'clock six o'clock by eight o'clock it's thawed out of the freezer i mean it's thawed and your soup is ready to warm up so Um, even just to add on that even for simply incorporating leftovers from dinner 
until a lunch for the next day. I mean, if you've had, I don't know, off the top of my head, I can't think of anything right now. I'm trying to think what I ate yesterday. Um, <laughs> so let's say you had, you know, you had a nice bit of chicken, for instance. Yes, yes. I mean, it's very easy to incorporate that into like a couscous salad the next day. Excellent. Yes, definitely. Yes, there. I think what you're talking about is repurposing. Mm-hmm. And you can also take a bit of a leftover... If you have just a bit of soup left, can you throw that into a new stew? Yes. yes. Or make a pasta sauce with it. Yes. I do that a lot, actually. We, we love like to make this marrow soup at home with, you know, the marrow zucchini, whatever. And, you know, if we make too much, then the next day we just cook up, you know, whole grain pasta. Uh, we use that as the base for our sauce. Maybe just add some other things like mushrooms to it, you know, and uh, or chopped peppers, and you have your sauce from your leftover soup, basically. If you want to thicken it, these are the little t- tricks we need to teach. You actually add a potato. Potato helps to thicken. So, oh, the starch. Uh, the starch. That's yeah. it. So, so, do you think that maybe one of the reasons why we're, you know, people in general, we, we tend to avoid, like, either the shortcuts or what? Do you think maybe the problem is that we, we want to have fresh food? We want, we want to have something that's, like, fresh and ready-made. Like, we don't, like eating the same food. Oh, we're a bit picky, um, what I'm trying oh, to yes. say with food. You think that might be part of the problem? Well, definitely. I'm just thinking of a friend of my husband <laughs> who, you know, who would never eat the same thing like, you know, the next day. Uh, I remember him being quite adamant about about that. But the reality is it doesn't have to be the same thing. As, as you know, Ika said, if you're repurposing, it can actually take a totally different shape, flavor, texture. So, uh, and I mean, you know, flavor, we're talking about plant-based diets, all the herbs, all the spices, which you can add to something, which, you know, will change its flavor composition. Completely. So if you've had, an, uh, let's say I mentioned this marrow soup, which we tend to make pretty, let's say, delicate. In the first round of it, it's a pretty delicate soup. But when you repurpose it, to use Nika's words, um, and, and make it into a pasta, you can give it that kick with some, like, you know, chili pepper if you want to or something like that. Uh, so it's just changed its, its flavor completely. But you used it in a different, you know, you used it in a different way and changed flavor. So I think it's these shortcuts and these, uh, you know, tricks which we need to help people to, to sort of work with and, and make their diet as, as varied as possible in, in, in that way. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But I'm very interested what you said, are people picky? Because what I'm finding is that we are n- not only losing the knowledge and with the recipes, we're losing a bit of that culture and, and history around what the f- food used to be like, but then I think we're becoming a bit complacent with what is available. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've lost so many different varietals. Let's give an example of apples. Mm-hmm. There used to be thousands, thousands. And I find it heartbreaking that we've lost so much of this. There's about 12 species of plants that we eat now. 12. And yeah. there used to be From a thousand. thousands. Yes. yes. Yeah. And... There's a lot we can still discover, which is the upside of that. But what I'm thinking about is maybe we're not picky enough, in fact, right now, because we're very happy with pastizzi, with twisties (laughs) in Malta, let's say. And uh, people can't even recognize now, some people, I'm not saying everybody, don't know what an unripe olive looks like. I mean, so much of Malta has lost its olive trees. And what about the Maltese goat? I mean, we're drinking cow's milk now here. But not too long ago, there used to be farmers coming to your door with a goat and milking the goat on your doorstep, which I I wish I could have witnessed. But there was also a denier when you were milking the goat directly. 
Yeah, initially the yeah, but I guess that was solved, and now I mean uh -huh. nowadays, of course, there's much more regulation with regards to that. But no, I think what what you're saying with regards to um, you know coming back to this plant-based diet and the whole approach of Mediterranean and everything, something as well, and I mentioned it earlier, and I think we should mention it, is the whole idea that of cost. People also think that yes. to eat plant-based can actually be expensive. Mm -hmm. Let's put it this way. The reality is when you look at um, you know, statistics and inflation, etc., it's true that fruits and vegetables tend to be the food group which um, have generally a routine increase in, in uh, price. Mm -hmm. That's very true. But the plant-based diet isn't just made of fruits and vegetables. You definitely want to include some of those and the varieties we said. But again, here I'm going to emphasize the pulses, the seeds. Um, nuts tend to be expensive, but let's focus on the pulses. So we're looking at all the kinds of beans. We're looking at the chickpeas, okay, lentils. Those are amongst the cheapest and ultra cheapest <laughs> foods you can buy, really. Um, so people need to, again, and this links to the recipes which we've lost, they need to start knowing how to cook with those beans again. The easiest thing is to add them to salads. Okay, mm -hmm. that's fine. But uh, you can make so-called like meatloafs, loaves, if you want to say <laughs> that. You can even be adventurous. And I'm seeing this in schools, uh, which is really nice with parents, like making muffins from red kidney beans, for example, mm -hmm. or making, you know, muffins from chickpeas and something else. So they would still be sweet because then you add things like applesauce or you add something like prunes or raisins and stuff like that. But, um, you know, basing, basing their muffins on, on, uh, on beans, for example, and chickpeas. And, and, and so there's, or, or you can, you know, coming back to sort of more maybe substantive, meals something like you ha you can make instead of like a meat-based curry let's say a lentil or chickpea based curry for example so people again need to be helped to learn how to cook more with these things now some people might come up with a kind of uh, complaint if you want to say that as many of these things need soaking etc but again it's not so difficult if you buy the dried varieties you soak overnight so you just before you go to bed put them in a water leave them to soak okay and leave them to soak even the whole next day till you come back from work. And then basically you would remove that water, put fresh water and then cook them again. And, and you have your, you know, really authentic, if you want to say that, uh, beans with nothing added. If you need a shortcut, and I appreciate that some people need the shortcut, you can go for the canned variety. All you need to do is rinse well from the brine, from the salt sort of thing. And that's, that's fine as well. So... Um, more use of beans, more use of beans. Uh, luckily, we have some really good things in Malta, like we have our, you know, kosksu with fool, mm -hmm. for example. Oh. Yes, so that's nice, with ricotta and egg, you know. If, if oh, you, you have a nice little jbeina with the kosksu with That's food. it, with <laughs> the jbeina, so perfect. And that's very traditional, of course. But yeah. yeah, there's so many things which you can do. And frozen fruits and vegetables are another option if yes. you need something cheaper. But that makes me actually uh, think about the the situation specifically in Malta, which in fact is not different in this sense from other parts of Western Europe, that veganism, as, a, as when it becomes a trend and you go to these vegan establishments, they are very expensive. Mm -hmm. And also, they, I think, at least for me personally, they come off as a bit elitist. Mm -hmm. And that's... I find that quite um, discouraging, especially if you're a person who's just beginning to question 
oh, maybe should I be changing up my diet a bit? That's really going to push somebody away, even the way that they're designed. You don't even want to walk up to the door because you feel like you're not part that's of that, that group. That's it's not, a groupy thing. Yes, nearly. it's a groupy thing. It's very othering. Mm -hmm. So maybe you can talk mm. about that. Yes, no, I, I appreciate what you're saying, and I think that's, that's very true. I think what needs to happen is that, you know, the plant-based uh, dishes, if you want to say that, become a more regular feature in any restaurant. Yeah. And not singling them out as this is for vegetarians, this is the vegan section of the menu, or this is the... Not do that. Just, you know, they're part of the menu. So you have dishes with meat, you have dishes which are more plant-based, but not emphasizing it. So it's like you're melding things. You're not mm -hmm. making it like something which only pertains to a certain group of people. Oh, that's the vegan dish. I'm not interested. No, I mean, you might start reading, you know, like when you have your menu, you have the the, the title of the dish, the name of the dish, and then you start looking and oh, wow, this looks really tasty, you know? And you might just suddenly realize, wow, there's no meat in that. Fine. You might not even realize, it's just like, you know, it just wins you over. And I think we need to have more of that. So it's making it uh, more mainstream, not sort of singling it out as something, you know, which is different, a different kind of diet. It's not a different kind of diet. And that's why, in a sense, at the beginning, I said, let's go more for the plant-based approach of terminology rather than vegan, vegetarianism, etc. Because to win over, I'm going to use that term, people who may not be so inclined to say, I'm a vegetarian, I'm a vegan, or whatever, that's maybe how we can how we can do it. It's just becoming making things more mainstream, and restaurants um, can play a big role here. The sort of regular restaurants, family restaurants, uh -huh. you know, um, um, I think they can do that. And and um, maybe even in when we're training chefs at in our in, uh, ITS, our school, you know, yeah. for for hospitality, we need to do that. And even in schools now, uh, students have you know vocational subjects. They have hospitality at age 13, 14, 15. And the training there can actually emphasize this as well. Don't say this is. Uh, this is. I'm just going to steal one minute here because I have a pet hate kids menus. I hate the term kids menus because <laughs> I would like kids not to have the menu, the typical kids menu, which is kind of often very unhealthy. Like chicken nuggets, yeah. and yes, yeah. and and sausages and all of that. But that they just eat like the grown-ups, but a smaller portion. You know what yes. I mean? So I'm sorry, I, I stole no, a no, minute fine, there. Yeah, uh, I was going. To, initially, you mentioned a, you know, because maybe people aren't picky enough, and I think that's fascinating because on the one hand, I find that a lot of people they tend to go for like we can't give them variety. We go for imported fruits. Now, my question is like, what's the dangers of say importing a fruit or a veg or something that isn't local, in the sense that, okay, it's beneficial, like because you're eating variety of fruit and veg, but. Is it effective, like for the planet in general? Is it sustainable in the long term? That's my question. Actually, we haven't touched on something, and I'm glad you mentioned that because we mustn't forget seasonality. So the main, maybe, message which which we often put across when we're talking about plant-based diets is eat seasonally, and that's again where you mentioned the bit of loss of knowledge. People often don't know what's in season, like you know, in season which is local. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you can't have people, you know, eating strawberries in September and October. That's definitely not seasonal, not local. Obviously, it's been imported. So again, uh, something which I must commend some local supermarkets for is they're actually putting up signs and notices or something indicating what is in season and local right now. And that, um, you know, in, in marketing, we have 
something a bit new now, which is sort of like nudging. Maybe this you've heard uh-huh. of this term where you're helping people to make a choice. Now, in this case, it would be helping people to make the choice by going for more local seasonal food. So having signposts up saying this is local, this is seasonal, that helps people to choose that food item. Something related to this is what we call sort of the like the environmental engineering in the sense that in the supermarkets you put the local and seasonal up front. Uh-huh, so as back. soon as you go in, you see the local and the seasonal and, and kind of, you know, it catches your eye. So, yes, you are right. The thing is to go for local and seasonal rather than imported because it depends where it's imported from as well. Maybe in Malta, and I can, I'll, I'll be honest here, be, uh, talking about our own habits at home, I do um, consume foods which come from Sicily, sometimes Spain, though I tend to try to keep to Sicily a lot. <laughs> But when I see, you know, grapes coming from Peru, when I see, you know, grapes coming from South Africa, that's when I say no. I'm going to wait till our grapes are in season, you know, and consume there. Because, yes, of course, I mean, all the energy which is being used for transportation, fossil fuels mainly, um, apart from the fact that just from a nutritional perspective, often, you know, things will have one been, um, you know, harvested when they're not really ripe yet. So certain nutrients won't have developed well enough. Um, they'll be more starch-based than, than anything, if you want to say that. And it could also be how they're transported, you know, the environment, the atmosphere and the whatever containers, etc. is modified. I'm not saying that it's harmful, but let's say you've just done something which isn't that natural. Let's put it this way. Mm-hmm. So um, I think, you know, there's m- much to it to recommend that we eat seasonal and that we eat uh, local as far as possible. So it's a key thing there. Thanks for mentioning that. But in Malta specifically, there's very little natural resources mm-hmm. and there is not enough agricultural land to feed everyone. On top of that, a lot of the agricultural land isn't even being utilized. It's mm-hmm. been abandoned. Mm-hmm. So one thing I would say is that, okay, we definitely need to revitalize a lot of that agricultural land. But even if we were to do that, Would Malta ever reach a point that it could feed everyone? No, that's a very good question. And uh, no, we couldn't. That's why it's a matter of also we have to think of all the tourists. Yes. Which visit our islands. I mean, uh, let's say normal circumstances, you're looking at nearly two million a year. Okay, they're not here all the same time, of course, but that really, um, you know, boosts the population. So, no, we would never be self-sufficient. Unless somehow or other we really used our land well and we had vertical vertical farming, (laughs) vertical farming, we would have rooftop, you know, something which we haven't mentioned is um, growing our own food eh? as well. I mean, the rooftop uh, gardens, I'm seeing a little small move locally. Uh, People are are looking into it. Yes, are looking into it. Again, speaking personally, I haven't started yet, but we're actually kind of doing works at home after many, many years. (laughs) And that's actually something which I'm going to look into because I think it's really interesting growing your own food. Of course, even just a a windowsill can help with some basic things, even a little yard, you know, with some troughs. But um, just to, you know, the thing is, coming back to your question, it would take a lot for us to be self-sufficient. So that's why I mentioned earlier, yes, we we are going to import vegetables and fruit. But um, let's try to go for 
buying fruits and vegetables from countries which are not too far from our shores. I think that's something which we can kind of tell people about. And something which we maybe haven't mentioned yet, and I'm just remembering because we don't have so much of these in Malta, is the organic, organic uh, you know, fruits and vegetables. So, I don't know, I mean, again, we have local farmers who are producing organic, but I think uh, a lot is imported as well. Luckily, we have a lot imported from Sicily. So that's uh, something which is helpful as well in the sense of you know, organic with respect to reducing pesticides in, in our soils, etc. But there's so much to say about this topic. It, you know, one can go on and on, I guess. I mean, the topic of organic food. I know it's something that you feel very strongly about. <laughs> and how do you feel about organic food? Well, I'm not a fan. Okay. I think that... Nutritionally speaking, from the research that I've read, there are no nutritional benefits. Mm -hmm. And I think that the message around organic is highly misconstrued a lot of the time. What organic means essentially is we're going to remove pesticides, but that in itself is not a very clear definition because you can have other forms of uh, biological mm -hmm. pesticides, which may be harmful. We're not sure, but there's not enough research at the moment to understand the implications of pesticide consumption, but there's a lot of fear around it. And so I feel like the conversations can get a bit emotional and sort of removed from the facts and acknowledging what we know and what we don't know yet. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. No, no, it's a very valid point. I think your first point is very valid, and I agree with you entirely. From a nutritional perspective, there isn't much to show that there's a difference between organic and, and other kind of foods which have been produced in the more conventional now way. Oh, okay. But the environmental argument is maybe the stronger one. Mm -hmm. um, with regards to pesticides, again, there's a huge variety of pesticides which can be used. I totally agree with Nika that um, even just traditionally people, farmers, knew how to uh, do pest control with other plants, mm -hmm. with other insects, for example. So that's just kind of, let's do that, integrated pest management, etc. Yes. So definitely, you know, our um, young farmers in particular need to learn more how to do that and revert back to that um, that system of pest control. But the reality with pesticides, um, yes, the science is is... You know, it's growing. The, the, yes. the studies, there's quite a lot out there now, which do indicate that, you know, when you have high pesticide residues on fruits and vegetables, etc., if people don't rinse well, it could um, increase the risk for certain cancers, for example. We have something called um, endocrine-disrupting chemicals. Uh, EDCs in short and uh, basically pesticides can be contributors to these uh, endocrine disrupting chemicals which mainly what they do is they impact as the name implies the endocrine system so things like um, they don't allow the endocrine system to function well so this could be related to things like for example um, insulin and diabetes for so, example yes, with endocrine we're talking about hormones essentially that's it so or or the reproductive system for mm -hmm. example so um, so with the EDCs endocrine disrupting chemicals there has been a link with pesticides as potentially uh, pesticides being uh, a source 
source of these mm-hmm. endocrine disrupting chemicals. I think there's quite a lot about that yeah. for us to be a bit cautious. Now, what we're saying here is, all right, um, admittedly, I would say that if you can consume organic in the sense in order to potentially help reduce your consumption of pesticides, it could be, but I think consuming organic is more um, in relation to um, environmental Uh, protection potentially but um, again at the same time if you don't consume organic the important thing is to rinse your fruits and vegetables well that is that is key and you don't need to do any particular washes and things like that because mm-hmm. people are sometimes you know marketing tends to sort of tell people buy this wash and buy that wash if you really you know rinse your fruits and vegetables well um, you can you can scrub a little bit if you want under running water don't waste that water put it in a basin and then use to water plants etc or wash outside or whatever you want but um, I feel that there's no harm in saying that um, organic foods can help um, particularly the environment uh, can help you potentially if it may help to reduce uh, pesticide let's say consumption but then again pesticides can be rinsed off if you if you wash your fruits and vegetables uh, well so I don't know Nika how you feel about that in the <laughs> message whether you would actually be stronger in your wording than that <laughs> yeah well I agree with you that there is there is research out there but I think that we're still largely dealing with some unknowns. Also, mm-hmm. the organic movement is relatively young still in comparison to how long we've been practicing farming. Yes. But it's old enough that I that I can I have seen at least in the states um, a lot of negative things happening. So we talked about diversity earlier. Yeah. You have monoculture organic farms in mm. America. Yeah. And they're yes. huge. And they are not good for the environment. I think we can agree that monoculture yes. as a practice is devastating environmentally speaking. Could you elaborate what monoculture is? Mm-hmm. Sure. Monoculture is when you farm only one, uh, only one type of plant. Or you might have a turnover twice a year. You do corn and then you do soybean and you alternate. But that's all. So it's just huge swaths of land mm-hmm. where there's only one crop. That's ho- I can imagine that's horrible for the soil. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Among other things. Uh, mm-hmm. But <laughs> lack of diversity means uh, it's going to impact our health, as we said. Um, but it also uh, is potentially destructive for other species because you can't have an environment where there's basically yeah. only one way to function. Mm-hmm. Um, that's there's what's going to happen is you might have um, one species dominating over many others who perhaps love corn and the rest of the species can't cope. When you have different plants and you have a complex environment, you have different niches which are allowing different species to thrive. Mm-hmm. But that, that's, yeah. that's very true, Nika. Um, again, as you're saying, any monoculture is going to be destructive on the ecosystems. You're not allowing a thriving flora and fauna to, to you know, happen. Of course, this could be both for organic for any other kind of of crop. But yes, I mean, if organic goes down that route, then it's going to have the negative impact, as you're rightly saying. Yeah. I think that a lot of people uh, practice what you're saying in terms of let's try to minimize the use of pesticides and take care of our our environment. And they don't have the organic stamp. Mm-hmm. And that's what I personally would like to be supporting. Yeah. Because when it becomes a trend you are getting people who care a lot but maybe can't afford to pay yes. for that quali- that certification mm-hmm. 
And so some people might be like, I'm just going to look for the organic label yes. and instead of looking for the local farmer who's actually really trying to farm yes. in a respectful way that cares for the environment. And I think that's part of the issue that I see with it. Yeah, I agree. And I, I think that's sort of linking to what I was saying earlier in the sense that especially our um, new, you know, younger farmers need to get that knowledge from their ancestors, from their you yes. know, older family members, how they used to do the pest control. And yeah. I think that's something which is essential. Yeah, I agree with you with regards to the organic labeling. Interestingly enough, now and um, earlier we mentioned in your introduction, you mentioned actually social media. That's also something, you know, in our, Nika and I have conducted a study, we can mention this, Nika, a couple of years ago, and one of the things which we had recommended there was to help farmers to market their produce better, and mm -hmm. this could be part of that marketing. With social media, and I'm seeing this now, even in Malta, you do have farmers actually going on social media now and saying, like, uh, you know, have a nice fresh crop of whatever, you know, which is in season, let's say, marrows, and they will actually add, of course, I'm assuming they're being truthful, but I'm sure they would be because in Malta people get to know things um, it's a small community and they would say and we don't use you know any pesticide sprays or we have you know and I think um, using social media to bring that message to the consumer directly um, can actually help our local agricultural um, system and our you know our economy from the agricultural perspective um, helping people to choose the local and the seasonal and and being and feeling that it's safe and feeling that it's safe. It doesn't have so many pesticides because other methods have been used for pest control or other methods have been used to, to boost production, if you want to say that, you know, rather than nitrites and nitrates and other artificial right. fertilizers, if you want to say that. If I'm not mistaken, yesterday I saw an opinion article by a group of local farmers who challenged that for the month of November they should only eat, they're challenging their customers to only eat locally for a whole month which I think is going to be quite ambitious. I'm not sure if like people can pull it off. But um, anyway, uh, just to wrap it up a bit, because we're unfortunately running low on time. Uh, we had this question earlier, me and Nico, before we, we walked in. Um, honey. Honey <laughs> and, and vegetarianism and veganism, sorry. I mean, is it an animal product? <laughs> is that an animal product? Interesting. Well, again, um, if I mean, I've never actually thought about that question, I'll be honest. But again, I mean... It, for the honey to be produced as such, the, the bee isn't harmed. Right. So, you know, you would say, okay, it's like vegetarianism, if you want to say that. <laughs> um, vegan. Again, that's a good question. I don't know, probably pure vegans would say would no, go against it, eh? would go against it. I would have a feeling. I don't know. I would have to ask a, a vegan about <laughs> that, or a group of vegans, just to see where their thoughts are. But that's an interesting point. But definitely, again, honey, part of the Mediterranean diet. Let's go for that for our sweetener, <laughs> to sweeten our foods. I mean, Absolutely. It's, it's as sweet as honey, literally. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, any final comments, closing remarks? Uh, Dr. Piscopo. Well, I would definitely say, you know, to all um, parents, grandparents, teachers, whoever is listening, um, present young kids with a variety of fruits, vegetables, herbs, spices, whatever. Get them used to all the different flavors so that they become picky, as Nika was saying, in the positive sense, mm -hmm. that they become picky because they want to have a variety of flavors in their diet. And, you know, plant-based diets can offer you a huge variety of flavors. 
It's been such a pleasure, and I completely agree. Beautiful end note. Thank you so much.